Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. Masterclass. Welcome to Missed Apex Podcast, brought to you by the patrons of Missed Apex Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Spanners Ready, and I'm joined by Matt Two Rumpets. How's it going there, Matt? Uh, it's going great. I, I love this, this fresh breath of air in the middle of the week. It's fantastic. And it's a bit more relaxed because it was crazy manic on the race review on Sundays, as panel shows generally are. Yeah, it was. And we did have a lot to argue about. And I think overall, we agreed that I won that debate. Although shockingly, and I don't want to get into it again, I think I have changed my mind slightly from the whole turn one incident. Oh, really? Yeah, I don't know. Just looking at it, the more I look at it, the more I see Raikkonen and the more I think, what on earth were you doing, son? I don't think he caused the situation to develop in the first place, but boy, he didn't help. No, he didn't. But you know what the worst part of it all is? Is going to be Verstappen's insurance going up. Oh, no, because he's under 25. Oh, he's going to get stung for that. Yeah, especially for a vehicle that expensive. Nightmare. We're not here to talk about the race again. We are here to have a driving masterclass, this time off the go-kart track and into real cars. So let's bring on Bradley Philpot, race driver, instructor extraordinaire. Good evening, everyone. How are you doing? Good. And what animals are you going to grace us with this time, Bradley? Oh, I don't know. Uh, Catherine the cat might wander through. She sat near me half asleep in a basket. So the ducks are put away for the night. So hopefully we won't be disturbed too often. Mm, that's disappointing. Some people came here only for the ducks. But for everyone else, let's remind you that we are an independent podcast hosted by MissedApexPodcast.com. We aim to bring you a race review before your Monday morning commute. We might be wrong but we're first. This show is safe for work. We're keeping it clean here so you can play this with kids and ducks in the background or at work. Okay, we're here to talk to Bradley Philpott about driving a race car on the track. So, all right, Brad, look, I'll level with you. I'm 37 years old and I am fully preparing 
for my midlife crisis. And I don't want to get stuck with a terrible midlife crisis. I'm not really interested in just some convertible car and just looking old and balding and grey in some sports car that's meant to be for a rich 20-year-old. And I do not want to be one of those Lycra guys with the the full-body suspender suit and a gut hanging out over the front of some, some racing bike handlebars. I want to do some track days. So when I eventually get to that midlife crisis of buying a race car, because you've never seen an unhappy person who owns a, a race car, I want to know how I am going to navigate around a track in that said crisis. Okay, sounds good. It's quite a general um, starting point. So you're you're talking about track days. First of all, I didn't think you were 37. I'm not just trying to compliment you. I thought you were more like my age, you know, like early 20s. Well, um, it's this new makeup. Uh, you're not early 20s. You're you're reasonably sh- old. Look, yeah, you, I know. the ship has sailed. Don't think you're going to get some Red Bull junior drive now. I'm I'm appropriate age for GT driving. I'll have you know, <laughs> about average. Um, yeah, okay. So you would like to do track days, which is a really good place to start um, because a lot of people that you speak to tend to say i'm going to get my race license and go and race and then they name some relatively high level series and they've got no no kind of plan of of how they're going to get the experience to to become good enough to actually race in that series and that's before we talk about the money so track days is a good place to begin with so you're going to probably want to get yourself a track day car to begin with so let's specify a bit what kind of car are we thinking of we're going uh you know old new front wheel drive rear wheel drive give me a bit of an indication so we can drill down into the specifics well i've always imagined my midlife crisis putting me in something like caterham or a formula ford but i think it would probably be more appropriate to maybe cover that and just sort of the road cars as well that you can get on a track yeah okay so caterham is a really good let's go with caterham um just as an we'll talk about all sorts but a caterham as a starting point great track day car very low maintenance, really, because they're extremely light. So obviously, you know, the lighter your track day car, the the less you're going to wear the brakes out and the less fuel you're going to use. And in just generally, it'll just be a little bit easier to look after and transport. So let's go with a, our imaginary Caterham. Not particularly cheap. Good resale value, though. So you can probably sell it for exactly what you bought it for. That's a good good way to sell it. To well, exactly. It's not spending money. You're just moving it into a Caterham for a little while. Exactly. It's an investment. Okay. So we're rear wheel drive. So that's up your street a little bit, isn't it? That's good. Um, being being Formula One oriented. Um, so then you're going to want to choose a track. Um, obviously, we've got lots of tracks in the UK. We're quite spoiled in that regard. So we'll go somewhere that's got plenty of runoff. Um, you could even start with an airfield track day if you want. Um, somewhere that's, you know, somewhere like Bruntingthorpe, where it's basically a runway that's got a few little bits of track. But I would suggest somewhere a little bit like, and I don't work for them anymore, but Bedford Autodrome is an ideal beginner track day track because there's not a lot to hit if you go off, except other cars, obviously. Try not to hit them. Um, so you've got your... Go on. Sorry, you've got a question. No, no, no. Just a story that I used to work at a site right next to the the one at Bedford. And my job at the time was testing fragile loads on heavy goods vehicles over the dust track around that. So I would be slowly trundling this heavy goods vehicle around, watching people have just the most fantastically good time around the Palmer School tracks, going, oh, looking down at my huge steering wheel and just thinking, oh, my life's terrible. Yeah, I used to see you guys uh, on the other side of the grass bank <laughs> and some of the uh, the other workers standing up there waving. Um, okay, so we've got ourselves to a track. You're in a, in a particular car. Um, so you're going to want to know how to drive it around. Now, you're in a bit, of a bit of a privileged position that you've done some karting now. 
um, and you're already a motorsport fan. So you follow the sport in a lot of depth. So you'll already have a very good starting point. You're going to understand a lot of the concepts that the vast majority of beginner track day drivers wouldn't understand. So you would be able to go out on the track and although you'd probably be maybe slightly nervous to begin with because you haven't done it yet. Um, so the first time out will be slightly nerve wracking. You'll at least know what a racing line should look like for the majority of the corners. And you're not going to be kind of completely overwhelmed by the whole thing. So go on. No, I was just saying, um, also, is it so stupid to say I've played a lot of computer games? So at least I realise the basics that I start on the opposite side of the track, come pinch the apex on the inside and go out. And I've, I've seen a racing line on Forza 6. Yes, those basics are, will be helped by your, your computer driving experience. Matt, what can I do for you? Yeah, I, I've looked at a lot of racetracks. And, and to be honest with you, the only lines I've ever actually seen on them are the white ones that theoretically mark the edges of the circuit, which I know is a discussion we can have later. Uh, so I, I guess for some of the less experienced um, listeners, when you talk about racing lanes, you're talking about visualizing the path of the vehicle entirely through the turn from, from beginning to apex to exit. Is that correct? Yeah, really. that's a really, really good place to start, actually, Matt. So, And your description's excellent. So as I'm sure a lot of the listeners will know, um, when we're talking about a racing line, we're talking about uh, an imaginary theoretical line that is the, the fastest way through a given corner. Um, and that corner won't be uh, taken in isolation. You have to know what comes before it and after it, as I'm sure a lot of you know. And, and yeah, it's essentially the fastest way through, which typically tends to be outside, inside, outside. That's a, as a very basic starting point. If we were showing uh, new track drivers, a diagram of a typical corner tends to be a 90 degree right-hander. You'd have a line from the far left-hand side of the track, which then neatly kisses the apex or the, uh, the curb on the inside um, about halfway through the corner. And then the line would continue to the outside as the car then leaves that imaginary corner on the board. That's a real typical line. Although as we dig deeper into it, obviously it becomes more complex and there's a lot more compromises. But as a basic starting point, absolutely right. That's the uh, the fastest way through a corner because essentially you're you're using as little steering lock as possible, um, which allows you to carry as much speed through the corner as possible. Um, as we go through this, you're going to notice that what you're doing with the steering wheel relates in a big way to what you're going to allow yourself to do with the pedals. Um, you know, if the steering wheel's straight, you've got license to put the gas down as hard as you want. And the more lock you put in, uh, the less throttle you're going to allow yourself to get uh, to um, to apply. So we're talking basics to begin with, which is good because I'm pretty tired after a long day at work. So thank you for easing me into it as well. So yes, racing line would be a real good place to start. But we'd also, before we let you out of the pit lane, Spanners, want to talk about the brakes as well, because we want you to get back to the pit lane after your first run as well. It's, Are you happy for me to proceed? Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's amazing thinking about these little things that we do every single day on our commute. And I hope we'll also talk about gear shifting, going up and down the gears, something you just don't even think about at all. And I, I saw my little lad doing his second Bambino training module today. And they, the first thing they did was they got them to drive towards a marshal. And then the marshal would say, stop, once he had enough faith that the kid actually knew where the brake pedal was. And it was fantastic to see the little kid's eyes kind of go, ah, yes, I figured it out. I've stopped. But yeah, obviously stopping as important as going. And so the big advantage you have over a Bambino Carter is that you have a concept of what the brakes are because you drive a car on the road. So yeah. actually 
pressing the pedal, although you're going to get better at pressing it the correct amount with the right pressure, um, at least knowing what it does and where it's located is going to be second nature to you. So that's one area where driving on the road is going to help you. There's a lot of areas where driving on the road is actually going to hold you back a bit to begin with. Um, so yeah, let's talk about brakes then before we move on to things like gears and all the really exciting stuff. Um, basically, brake before a corner if you're going too fast to go through that corner. Now, I appreciate that you won't know that to begin with. So you begin by being a bit conservative. You have to really obviously use your judgment at this point. If it feels like you're going a bit too quick for the tightness of the corner that you're approaching, brake. And don't be afraid to brake hard if required. Press the brake pedal pretty firmly. We're assuming we're in a car that's been prepared for a track day and that you don't have completely standard road brakes or you know lots of weight in the car and shopping in the back. We're in a caterum, so it's going gonna, it's gonna to be quite good. You've got no worries about overheating things. So as you explore the track for the first time, you're going to be approaching the corners with a little bit of caution, braking well in advance of the corners. Even if it turns out later on, you're going through a corner which might actually be flat out or not require any brakes at all. Um, it's better to err on the side of caution to begin with as you're getting used to the feel of the brakes. So that's this is a real good starting point. And I'm assuming you know where the throttle pedal is. And I'm assuming that owning this caterum or maybe renting it um, for this session you know it's rear-wheel drive. And in this example, it means you need to be particularly careful squeezing the accelerator pedal. You've got no driver aids to help you out in our theoretical situation here. Um, so very easy in a, in a caterum, even quite a low-powered caterum, to spin the wheels as you exit a corner and spin around. And you may well, on this, on this imaginary exploratory couple of laps, you may well have some spins. Uh, but hopefully, you're going to be smooth enough on the accelerator pedal, and your accelerator is going to be attached to the steering wheel um, in your mind. So you only allow yourself to squeeze the accelerator pedal down as you're straightening the steering wheel in front of you. So I'm going to try and demonstrate that with my wheel here. Um, so if I've got this much lock on, for example, which yeah. to the listeners who can't see me is 90 degrees left lock, I'm only going to allow my right foot to start pressing the accelerator pedal as that lock starts to wind off effectively as you're leaving the corner. And as we mentioned earlier, if you've got the steering wheel straight, you're very unlikely to to have any handling deficiencies when you go to full throttle. That's Much assuming you don't have Kimi Raikkonen on your left-hand side, of course. And yeah, it was fantastic to see my little boy, who is normally, I mean, he's thick. I, I don't want to disparage little tree face. Like, he's good at maths and that, but getting ready, planning a day, he's normally terrible, doesn't use his brain. It was wet on his little training session as well. And fortunately, he had the brains to wait until the cart was settled and pointing in the right direction before going off. And a lot of the kids were just you know, spinning. And obviously in the wet, that effect is exaggerated. If you've got lock on and you smash on your, your rear wheel drive tires, car, the, the, the back end will want to just shoot out the opposite way uh, that you're steering. So before we get to accelerating out of the corner, um, I remember from playing a Formula One game a little while ago that they said, as you go in to a corner, you're braking hard, you're braking hard. As you actually go into the corner, you're supposed to kind of lift off the brake as you apply the steering is this what is called trail braking okay so what you're describing is kind of the opposite of trail braking if i understand you correctly and this is actually a good thing to cover you do tend to tell most beginners um that when you're doing your braking uh, your braking phase of the corner which is the straight generally you want to come off the brakes before you start your turn in but that is a beginner concept i know we're talking about a, a beginner theoretical situation here so to begin with probably would be a good idea to get the braking done come off the brakes 
and then turn into the corner. You're giving yourself one thing to think about at a time. And you're also going to make sure you don't have too much weight over the front wheels as you turn the steering wheel and maybe lose the rear end. But as we get more advanced, you'd find that actually trail braking, which is where you do stay on the brakes to a certain degree as you commence your turn into the corner, trail braking is extremely important and no driver would be fast. You'd, you'd never, no Formula One driver would get within five seconds of, of the pace if they didn't trail brake into the corners. So that's a slightly more advanced thing. Um, but um, yeah, so not trail braking would be coming fully off the brakes before the corner. Trail braking would be maintaining some amount of brakes as you turn in. So I have a comment and a question. Actually, I have about two questions at this point, but I'll keep it brief. The The comment was, I think Spanners was referring to as a Formula One car slows, aerodynamic load comes off of the car and the drivers have to modulate the brake pedal to keep the front wheels from locking, which is a, which is a challenge in, in that particular discipline and wouldn't be quite the same thing, I wouldn't think, for our track day car. It's not quite the same, but there is still a similar effect. You would still want you. We're talking about something slightly more advanced here, but I'm happy to. Um, you would want your braking trace, um, i.e. the amount of pressure you apply to the pedal to be hardest at the initial braking. So the first time you hit that brake pedal, you want maximum braking amount. Now, this is regardless of whether you've got downforce, because if you imagine all the weight going onto the front wheels, you can get away with a higher amount of brake pressure initially. Then as the speed bleeds off and the car slows down and there is less weight over the front wheels, similar to your downforce effect, although we're talking about weight rather than downforce, you're going to have to ease off the brakes, partly because of the, you know, there's less weight over the front wheels, but also partly because you're going to want to start your turn into the corner. And the moment you start turning the wheel, you're going to unload the front left wheel. If we're talking about uh, a left-hander uh, or a front right wheel, if you're talking about a right-hander, I'm going to interrupt. And then you're in danger of locking. I'm so going to interrupt because you're being you're, you're using clever words, and I'm not exactly sure what they mean. And we hear it okay. on F1 all the time. He's unloaded the left wheel. I'm, I'm a bit embarrassed to say this. I don't know what that means. No, that's great. No, this is. I'm really glad that you're giving me the input and you're asking the questions you want to know the answers to. It helps me a lot. So what I mean is. Imagine you're in the braking phase. You're braking hard for a corner. You're approaching a left-hander in this example. Um, and as you arrive at your turning point, you're still on the brakes and you start to turn in. The moment you start to turn left, the weight of the car is going to start to move to the right-hand side of the car, which then unloads the front left. So there's less weight over the front left wheel, which means that brake, that wheel is going to lock up more easily than the right wheel, um, which is why you then have to ease off the brakes in a non-downforce car we're talking about in this example, but it's exactly the same in Formula One. They just get away with even higher pressure on the right. brakes because of the downforce. I can visualize it now. So because the left-hand wheel has less uh, traction to the ground, the brakes have yeah. more of an effect. So they're, 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 they're more likely to grip it and overcome the ground effort to keep it turning. Therefore, yes, it will lock. Yes, precisely. Right, I can visualize yeah, there's, that there's, now. There's less weight um, over that particular tyre. It's not being forced into the tarmac as hard as the right front tyre because you're turning left uh, and therefore it's easier for that brake to lock. Exactly as you say, the ground isn't forcing the tyre to turn yeah. As much as it is the right side. I love the chat room. Um, join the chat room by looking for Missed Apex podcast on YouTube. Click the subscribe button, click the little bell, and you'll get a notification every time we go live. Lorenz Rollograph says, at that point, you're more motorcycle than car. And Blackout19 says, indeed, Kvyat frequently unloads his front wheels by removing them. That's a great comment. <laughs> Let's put that on the shortlist. We'll do it, we'll do it. Matt, go for it. 
yeah, well, since we're talking about corners, um, I, I had a question for you. When you are finding the speed that is uh, the fastest you feel you can go through a corner, are you then matching it simply by sight or by feel, or are you actually using your instruments to make sure you're going the speed you want to be as you enter it? Because this has always bothered me about racing. I love these questions. This is great. Um, okay, so first, easy to answer that um, initially, you're definitely not using any instruments. There's definitely no one's looking at a speedometer and going, okay, I think this corner should be 50 miles an hour. I've slowed down to 50. Now I can turn in. That that just is not something that happens, but certainly not with anyone who knows what they're doing in the slightest. It's all done through feel, but I'm not going to be as vague as to just leave it at feel. You're your um, hands on the steering wheel and your inner gyros, your uh, your inner ear effectively, are giving you information. And it's down to you as a driver to interpret that in a certain way. So it, it's like a computer programming formula. I did a little bit of computing at college before I was really rubbish at it and got a D or something. But it's essentially, in this situation, um, we're talking about going into this theoretical left-hander. You go in at a speed which feels roughly right. So I know I'm being a, bit, a little bit vague here, but you go in at a speed which to you as a relatively experienced road driver doesn't feel completely crazy. Um, you think you're going to make it just as on the road. You don't have to you know, judge your speed uh, by looking at the speedo for every new corner you arrive at. So you've got some kind of judgment and you turn the wheel. And when you turn the steering wheel, you notice a, a change in direction. You feel the G-force. You feel that an increase in steering lock adds to the g-force so most people wouldn't really think about this in on the road but it, you're feeling this on the road as well you turn the wheel and every increase in lock every degree of increase in lock provided you're staying at the same speed is going to increase the g-force that you're feeling now the moment that stops so say i'm, I'm staying at the same speed uh, i'm just using a, an example here we'll get we'll go into a bit more detail in a moment the moment that g-force stops increasing but the steering wheel is still turning further there's a bit of a disconnect there and you know something your your racing brain tells you that I'm turning the wheel further that should result in increased sensation of g-force but that isn't happening and so that's telling you that the front wheels are starting to slide across the track that's your first hint at understeer um, you could also notice it as the sensation of the steering wheel going slightly lighter um, you really a very simple way of putting it is the fastest you can travel through a given corner um, provided we're talking about a front limited, a front grip limited car at the moment. We'll, we'll go into that in a moment. Um, the fastest you can go is where the steering wheel feels heaviest. Once you go past that point and the steering wheel starts to feel lighter, you'll also notice a decrease in, in the G-force, which was increasing up until that point. And you know that is understeer. That is how you sense understeer. Um, you'll also notice that you're, you're straying from the desired line because you're obviously steering towards a set point on the track. We're hoping that you've got an idea what the apex is, or at least roughly where that is, which is the where the racing line meets the inside of the track. Um, so we're um, assuming you've aimed at a specific point on the inside of the corner. And in addition to the, the G-force not increasing with the steering lock increasing, you'll also find that you are, through your eye, you know, by using your eyes, you'll see that you are not on that same trajectory that you desired a moment ago. And at that point, you need to do something about it. If you don't want to just run wide, which might be harmless, it might just result in a loss of lap time, or it might be into the barriers or off onto the grass. Hopefully, did that make sense? Was, was that a relatively 
No, these things never sure. make sense on the first listening. I actually listened to your carting thing two or three times and then it started to, to sink in. And you have to kind of imagine that scenario. So in this scenario, I'm trying to put myself in my Caterham, which is a rear wheel drive car and watching the Caterham racing on Channel 4, Channel 4, put your on demand stuff in HD. For goodness sake, it's 2017. What are you doing? Uh, but we do sit and watch that on a 4K TV in SD and it's good fun. But those things, you can see it. They are trying to under, they're understeering, they're understeering, they're, they're really struggling with it. And then all of a sudden, they kind of snap and go back the other way. Is that from them yep. trying to compensate for the understeer too much? Okay, so when you see a car uh, in, in an understeer moment, if we call it that, when it's understeering, as, as you've observed, and then at some point it switches to oversteer, um, what that would tend to be is the driver has taken corrective measures to, to stop the understeer which would typically be maintaining or reducing the steering lock in conjunction with lifting off the throttle. Yep. So if you're, if you're on the throttle and you're understeering, removing that throttle is your first port of call. Uh, you need to remove the input, which is causing the problem. So if you're understeering, you're going too fast for the amount of steering lock you've requested. Therefore, either you've got to slow down, um, which is no- the normal course of action, or you've got to request less steering. Now, if the corner hasn't suddenly got less tight, which it doesn't generally, <laughs> reducing the steering isn't a very viable option because you're you're basically going to go off the track. It's probably better to go off the track not understeering than understeering, but that's not desired. So you're going to lift off the throttle, and at some point you're going to slow down to the point where you're no longer understeering, and that's where the balance shift will change to oversteer, and that's what you're seeing with the catering. So they're slowing down to the point where. The front end is gripping again. And as it grips, particularly if they've maintained slightly too much steering lock, it's then going to switch to oversteer. Because as the front grips, actually, they've got the wheels turned further than they actually needed to. It's quite common with understeer. People people sense the front wheel sliding and their, their brain says, the car isn't turning enough. Therefore, I need to turn more. And they end up turning the wheel further than they would if they weren't understeering. So when it grips, they then end up kind of uh, firing into the corner at a tighter angle than is desired, which tends to end in oversteer. Hopefully that made sense, uh, which is another good reason why you don't increase the steering lock when you sense understeer. You have to force yourself, train yourself not to do that. Good drivers, uh, you know, any pro wouldn't increase the steering lock unless they were testing, unless they'd reduced the lock and they were then trying again in a similar way to when you lock a wheel and you come off the brakes and then you brake again to see, do I have grip now? Um, hopefully that makes sense uh, matt we've got yeah go on yeah no i was going to say uh, if it to me it sounded like for a second you were almost giving the same advice that i used to get about uh, being in a road car if the car started to slide which was to steer into the direction that it was going in order to align all the wheels is that okay kind of it? so that would be um for oversteer we hadn't quite got onto that yet um essentially all i was saying with that uh with the steering um, relating to understeer is don't turn further than you need to keep the wheels pointed where you actually want to go so when eventually it does grip once you've slowed the car down enough so that it will grip you won't end up um, with a snap with snap oversteer which sounded to me what um, Spanish was talking about um, just to just to kind of go over what you just said 
um, you you were basically describing opposite lock. So generally, on in road driving, if someone's being taught um, how to control a skid or a slide, uh, we're talking about a rear end slide in those examples. Um, you don't ever you don't generally hear people referring to understeer or front end slides like that. Um, and yes, the simple way of putting it is you turn into the slide to correct that. Um, in even simpler terms you keep the front wheels pointed where you want to go because the car has pivoted in relation to where you want to go. That effectively to you looks like you're turning into the slide. Um, but in reality, all you're doing is compensating for the undesired pivot of the car by keeping the front wheels pointed down the track. Um, you need to do that quick enough though. You need to, you need to feel it happening and, and put that opposite lock on, turn, turn into the slide or keep the wheels pointed down the track quicker than the car is rotating around on you uh, if the rear is sliding at quite a high speed if it's if it's going to swap around on you quite quickly obviously that means you've got to get the opposite lock on very quickly as well otherwise it'll be too late and you're just going to spin all the way around probably in a, in a long slow spin if you've attempted some opposite lock um, i can see someone on the comments there saying steer with throttle um you, if you're already oversteering and we're in your caterham, your rear-wheel drive car, steering with a throttle won't be much use to you. You're just going to make the situation worse because the reason you're sliding is probably because you were on the throttle in the first place. Uh, in a front-wheel drive car, um, we're getting into quite a lot of detail now, but in a front-wheel drive car, if you were sideways, if you were getting oversteer, you would get on the throttle um, and that would then pull you straight again, hopefully. Um, Matt, we've, we've spoken about a lot of varied things already so apologies if we've gone off on several tangents i'll try and get back into our our theoretical beginner session in just a moment no do you know what that's the beauty of having a live chat room you can organically see the questions and and the the points that that, that naturally evolve out of it because like i say on this i'm the useful idiot who uh, who asked the question about unloading the tires and and i think we have another useful idiot in the chat room i'm only kidding you're not really a useful idiot uh low stealth he says he knows he's skipping ahead, but I'm interested in the question. But where is that last 1%, 5%, 10% or whatever being fast? And I, and I assume we're talking through the corners like we've been discussing. In other words, what advice would you give Palmer? Hey, he's just scored a sixth place in Formula One. Lay off the lad for once. Um, okay, so the last percent or last 5% or however we're going to want to um, frame it is basically in recognizing these things we're talking about so for example you know when we were talking about you you noticed that the g-force is no longer increasing as the steering lock's increasing it's noticing those little things and there's a lot of different things when it comes to you know driving fast on track that's just one element of a very complex skill it's recognizing those handling deficiencies as fast as possible and reacting to them in the correct way as fast as possible which you could phrase it in, in a more simple way of dancing on the limit. Um, basically, you're you're at the limit of the car all the time, whilst never overstepping it enough to lose your lap time. It's just knowing where that exact line is, having the correct reactions to what the car tells you to, better than the other guys. And obviously, every Formula One driver is doing this at a very high level anyway. It's just how well they're doing it and uh, someone like a hamilton would have very good programming in their in their racing brain that i keep referring to where they where they almost always have the exact correct reaction at the right time or inputs rather than reactions a bad word um to what your senses are telling you and in fact he'll have a very good predictive model in his mind as well he'll he'll know exactly what to expect so before he even 
feels the thing going wrong, he'll already know that it's about to and how to respond to it. So it, all, the, all these responses to the cars, what the car is telling you, are all lined up, ready to go. And the correct one is chosen in an instant. And it's just, like I say, about how well those people do that. So but they're all very good. So obviously, for example, in the last three seasons at Mercedes, everyone loved having this narrative of Hamilton is just a lucky, blessed person who instinctively has all these things, whereas Rosberg is up all night stroking his beard before he cleanly shaves it for the media presentation and, and working out exactly where he needs to be, analysing all Hamilton's data to get himself up to that that's a great narrative is it complete rubbish like can you get guys that are just naturally on it and just feel it through their ass and other guys who can study and learn can you do it those two ways can you have co no hang on divergent evolution no the other one convergent no yeah you know what um, I, mean. I know exactly what you're talking about so i think these kind of differences between the 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 manner that drivers go about um, their racing and the way they drive and the different driving styles I think they're very exaggerated um, when people are talking about them. They get very simplified. This whole Rosberg has to study and think about it really hard and Hamilton just rides by the seat of his pants. There's definitely some truth to it. There's definitely a, an element of that. But in reality, they're both operating in that example very, very similarly. They're both flying by the seat of their pants. They've both developed these natural reactions to things and these instincts and this feel over their decades of karting and single-seater racing up to Formula One. Then if you were to watch an onboard of them and they were just both wearing white suits, white helmets, you couldn't see who was who. For the vast majority of cases, you'd really struggle to tell who was who. And we're talking about Marcus Ericsson up to Hamilton in that kind of example. You'd really struggle just if you didn't have the lap time, obviously, to, to judge by. Um, but when people talk about it on TV and that kind of thing, they do exaggerate these differences. But there's generally a small nugget of truth. I just well, before it disappears, I noticed a comment by James Funnel. Um, hopefully, I pronounced that correctly. That I just wanted to address because it's a really good question. He says, "In a rear-wheel drive car, can you counteract understeer by applying loads of throttle to rotate the car?" Um, the simple answer is <laughs> it's a common it's a common misconception. Um, okay, I want to answer this as accurately as possible. For the most part, no. If you're understeering, you're going too fast for the corner. Getting on the accelerator is instantly going to take any weight you've already got over the front tires off the front tires. So all the weight goes to the back. Generally, even in something like a catering, if you're understeering and you get on the power, it's going to really make the understeer worse in the vast majority of cases. In some cases, if you've got a very low level of grip, say it's wet, or you've got an extremely powerful rear-wheel drive car, you will change that understeer into oversteer but you're going to run so wide because you're already understeering you won't stop the understeer initially you'll turn into a big four-wheel drift and you'll run out of track generally the cure for understeer would almost never be to apply more throttle um so, so I'm, hopefully yeah, that answers your question. yeah i've been listening to you now the the cure for understeer is to straighten up so that the tires have uh, more chance of acting on your inputs and release the throttle pedal. Pedal, Bradley. I think I'm learning slightly. Um, yeah. So if if not straighten up, certainly don't increase the lock and reduce the steering to the point where it feels heaviest. So at the point you were at just before you noticed it was understeering. Um, but yeah, and, and lift off the gas. Okay, so speaking of lift off the gas, one of our patrons earlier today when he found out that you were going to be on the show mentioned actually getting a lesson from you back in the day and uh, then put up some video of him uh, 
oversteering and spinning rather magnificently off the track. And I, I had said to him, it looked like he caught maybe too much curb and that unsettled the car. He said, no, I think it was I lifted off because I felt like I was going too fast. And the immediate result was that he just went um, right, right backwards off the track, spun right off the track. So if you were trying to slow down in your rear wheel drive car and you lift off the throttle too much, uh, or, or, or simply this seems to be the last thing left. What, how do you keep that from happening? How do you keep that sort of oversteer, lift off oversteer from happening if you're understeering to begin with? And, and I just okay. say that patron is uh, Pad Rock. Uh, that's Paddy, who I have had a beer with and has in fact bought me a beer. So he's one of my favorite patrons. Top tip, buy me beer. Um, I'd like to see the example, um, first of all, to, to comment on that specific situation. But as a general rule, um, Lift off oversteer tends to be something that you'll get in front engined cars um, to begin with. Although, you know, it, lots of the things we're talking about can happen in, in any car. But generally, when people have suffered lift off oversteer, it tends to be in something like a hot hatch where you don't have much weight on the rear end. You've got quite a lot of weight on the front and potentially maybe slightly soft suspension. Um, <laughs> you tend to see it on, you know, tin top racing, uh, touring cars, that kind of thing. And when you lift off, obviously, you put lots of weight on the front. And that, as we were talking about earlier, lends uh, sorry, um, then creates this uh, balance shift where instead of the car not quite turning enough, it then turns more than you desire, or maybe maybe the amount you desire. You might you might be doing this on purpose. Now, in the example you spoke about, I, I can't really picture it perfectly, so I will go try and have a look at that. But in a rear-wheel drive car, um, lift-off oversteer isn't often a thing. Um, you can obviously imagine the concept where uh, if you were, if the car was on the edge of adhesion and you were going a constant speed, so you weren't accelerating, you were kind of uh, keeping the throttle pedal constant. Maybe you were mid corner in a long, a long right hander. I'm thinking of, um, I'm thinking of turn one, two, three at Barcelona, maybe, uh, you know, kind of quite a long constant right hander. If you were to then lift off the throttle there, um, I can't even picture a single seater doing this because they're very stiff. So it's hard to, it's hard to get a major weight shift to the front, but theoretically. How would you like to look five years younger in a clinical study? People that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. You could lift off. And if you certainly, if you increase the steering lock a little bit at the point you lift off, you could maybe induce lift off oversteer. But it's really not a thing in a rear wheel drive car that you tend to find in the car I race. Um, so I'll, I'll be back out in, in my 308 TCR car at the Nürburgring this weekend. Lift off oversteer is a major component to the way the car handles, um, because that is like the example I gave of a hot hatch. It's a front engined you know, weight over the front front wheel drive car with a very light rear end. There's, there's nothing in the back. And suspension which is softer than a single seater obviously and so when i lift off the throttle there is a major weight shift and therefore you've got to be very conscious every time you're in the middle of a corner so you've already got the steering wheel turned and you lift off the throttle you've got to be very conscious that that is going to have an immediate and dramatic change to the balance of the car you're going to go from either neutral or understeer into oversteer most of the time very very quickly um if you're going in a straight line though if you're approaching a corner, obviously you're going to lift off if you if you want to decelerate, and you're never going to have lift off oversteer in a straight line. That's just that's not a that isn't um, really a concept. Um, in the same way that you can't really have understeer in a straight line either, because if the steering wheel's straight, then you're telling the car to go straight. Hopefully that makes some kind of sense. It's uh, as with a lot of these things, um, verbalizing them is is. A little bit tricky. Do you know what? You're doing a grand job, Brad. But I'm going to hijack what you were talking about because I want to ask one question and then I definitely want to move on to shifting up the gears. So just going back a little bit to our our thing. I know you said there's not too much difference between how the guys drive and we wouldn't be able to recognise them if they were all in Stig-type suits. But in a future where motorsport is as popular as football and everyone is amazing... Is the F1 grid populated with Lewis Hamilton's or Nico Rosberg's? Uh, and di- and assuming they are the same ability, just different approaches. Sorry, just just repeat that question. I don't think, quite think I understood. In oh, so you mean if everybody yes. was if everybody was really yeah interested in motorsport, so we had a larger pool of talent. To exactly. Draw from. So so everyone yeah, I, everyone would probably in that case be faster than Lewis Hamilton. I think I think there's definitely an argument to be had there. Um, Lewis, Lewis is at a very high level, which is, I think, close to uh, the limit of what a human can actually, how, how good a human can be at driving and controlling a car around the track. I think there is, there is a ceiling. But then you see someone like, you know, Lewis had a lot of opportunity, obviously, when he was young, which is where lots of, lots of his ability comes from, you know, learning the right things at the right time with the right support, the right mental approach, all that kind of thing. And seat time is, is obviously very important. And then you see someone like Lando Norris coming along, who's had even more opportunity than Lewis and has 
you know, had personal trainer from a very young age and and every opportunity they could possibly have to to practice in the right environment and has also made the most of it as as Lewis did. And you think, wow, maybe that person uh, and someone like Max Verstappen would be a similar example. Um, maybe that person is at an even higher level or, or has the potential yeah, to be. Yeah, so yeah. I think to answer your question, I think everybody would be more of a Lewis Hamilton right. than a Marcus Ericsson. I think it's just... I said Rosberg, uh, but uh, I don't, oh, mind. Sorry, Rosberg, I don't mind that sorry. comparison. That's fine. Um, I, I just see Ericsson as probably the, the the slowest on the grid, that's all. I'd put him probably behind Palmer. I'm so, not sorry, acknowledging... Going off, off I, I am not acknowledging the, the driver of which you spoke anymore. I'm done after finding a brand new place in Formula One to be, frankly, in the way. Uh, hold on a second, though. Let's talk about our patrons. <laughs> As I said earlier, this show is 100% brought to you by the patrons who support us. Uh, And if you do enjoy the podcast and you'd like to support us, we have two ways in which we ask people to do this. A, tell everyone. Tell them Missed Apex Podcast adds to your F1 fandom. Or B, you can support us with real money. If you support content creators on Patreon, then please consider supporting us. Go to MissedApexPodcast.com and click on the Support Us tab in the menu. Every penny is spent on podcasting not one cent goes to feeding bradley's ducks uh look it means when you support us on patreon that when stuff breaks we can replace it it means that we can build it means that we can grow so please consider supporting us for two dollars a month so <laughs> sorry i didn't realize there was another uh well that's how you know that's how i sort of you know i just it's called framing i think because i, I, I would go oh. do you want to carry on well i don't know i could do it And that slick bumper with no kind of unprofessional hiccups beforehand gives us back to Bradley and his ducks. Okay. So I just wanted to clarify something because I think I probably misspoke a little bit, especially uh, just reading through some of the comments on the side. Um, uh, Low Stealth mentions Honda S2000, obviously a rear wheel drive car, um, mentions that 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 has lots of liftoff oversteer. People also using NASCAR examples. So I think I probably said something to the effect that uh, liftoff oversteer isn't something you tend to find in rear wheel drive cars. That, That isn't true. Um, there are obviously examples where if the suspension's relatively soft, basically, if you can get uh, a decent amount of weight transfer, you're going to get lift off oversteer. Um, so those are great examples. Those cars, same kind of thing, mid corner, mid right hander at Barcelona. If you lift off the throttle, you're going to put more weight on the front. You are going to change the balance of the car. And if you do that dramatically enough, you can shift the balance to oversteer. So, so good examples, guys. Um, and, and when we're talking about cars like that Honda S2000, which I've actually driven one, is very exciting for me. Uh, we're also talking about cars where the engine is definitely in the front and not in the middle or the back. And that's going to exacerbate the potential for that. Yeah, although <laughs> then it can get even more complex because something like uh, imagine a Porsche 911 with the engine at the opposite end of the car. Um, you can still get dramatic lift off oversteer because there's a large weight behind you, which is then trying to overtake you when you lift off. That that weight from the rear is trying to move forward, um, and, and that will also give you lift off oversteer. So it doesn't; it's not solely front engine cars. Um, it, it just tends to be when we're talking about this. It tends to be easier to imagine that. Um, you actually asked me a question which I never answered, Matt. Which was, um, how do you stop this from happening? Um, I think you asked me, how do you cure it? Um, and the answer is, don't lift off the throttle as dramatically. So if you're getting lift off oversteer, 
Um, you're in mid-corner and you're sensing maybe a little bit of understeer. So you want to correct that by removing that understeer, removing the throttle, um, you know, decelerating slightly or, or moving the weight forward. If you come completely off the throttle and maintain the same steering lock, you're putting a lot of weight on the front in a very quick time period. Um, so a lot of weight off the rear at the same time. That's going to cause much more of a snap, much more dramatic lift off oversteer. If you want that to not happen as much, you just lift off less dramatically. And and part of the skill of race driving, part of the skill of driving around the corner as quick as possible, this is quite a fundamental one, is choosing, judging the right amount to lift off in that particular situation. So you're at the limit. You've gone in as quick as you possibly can. And as you sense the front starting to slide, you lift off the throttle, but you don't necessarily jump off the throttle. And I, I'm seeing frequently um, some comments saying slow in, fast out. Um, that's a, a common uh, kind of beginner trope that we would say to people um, because obviously it's you want people to get through the corners and then build on that. Quite often you could be fast in and then slow out depending what the next corner is. If you've got a very short straight following a corner, you might actually want to go in really fast and take that lap time on the entry and then be very slow out because you've got such a small amount of potential gain on the exit. As a general rule though, certainly for beginners, it's better to err on the side of caution. You go into the corners a little bit more slowly. You give yourself chance to choose your racing line. You're not um, stuck with all this understeer or other handling imbalances. And then you drive off the corner under control. You're on the power earlier. Um, but slow in, fast out isn't something that we'd always talk about in more professional race driving unless we were talking about a hairpin followed by a very long straight, for example. And Matt, go for it. Sorry, you've been waiting. Well, it also occurs to me, and I know I've heard spanners talk about this, that brakes are not the only way to slow down the car. We could also theoretically change a gear here or there. And and I wondered if you, you would like to talk a little bit about when to change and how to change gears in a track day situation compared to how one might do it on the road, assuming one has a car that doesn't simply do it for oneself. And absolutely. And before he gets to that, that makes me reminisce, Bradley, of the first time we met and you were over my shoulder and I could feel your eyes rolling as you very patiently described to me that, no, this is not a road car. Because uh, as I was coming to the corner, I was thinking, this seems pretty much like a third gear corner. I'll just brake, 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 looking for my clutch and I'll I'll just get into third when I'm ready to accelerate away, which is, you know, typically how people have been taught in the past to approach a junction. You you come in at 60 miles an hour, you slow down, slow down, slow down, you stop the engine from stalling by sticking the clutch in, then you put it in the gear and off you go. Yeah, so we're talking about a sim racing session that we were we were in, weren't we? Yeah, okay, so gears. Uh, gears are a, a, a subject that I'm quite interested in. This does start to often get a little bit more difficult to visualise, so I will do my very best, audience, to... Um, to make this uh, not not boring and uh, and easy to think about. Our audience is used to Matt and Matthew Summerfield, who did an excellent tech time that you can find at MissedApexPodcast.com uh, last week, and they'll be doing one this Sunday. So there is absolutely no way the people who have hung around in that environment are going to get bored by you. Okay. Um, so in your road car example, um, you uh, your gear changing is dictated by a different set of criteria to to what it would be on on the racetrack. So on the road you want to be you want to be in the right gear to pull away from a junction or or you know accelerate out of a corner within reason. You want to be in a gear which allows you to be in the correct point in the rev range that when you accelerate 
there's enough power available um, for you to to drive away without the car bogging down or without the car immediately hitting the rev limiter. So that's where your judgment of this corner looks roughly tight enough to be third gear at 30 miles per hour that I'll change into that gear as and when I'm ready to. That's when that comes in. You've got no pressure to to get down the gears really fast or anything like that. You can even do several gears at once on the road, can't you? You can go down from, you know, maybe sixth down to third or whatever you need to. You're not under so much time pressure. No one's judging you on how quickly you manage to do the corner. You just need to be roughly correct. But on the racetrack, um, everything you do has to be done in the in a way which is going to uh, give you the best performance. And you don't want to be doing anything for the sake of it. You're only doing things when you need to do them and for a definite reason. So you always absolutely want to be in the correct gear for the speed you're doing. Um, obviously when you're leaving a corner, but we're going to talk about entering a corner to begin with. So we're talking about now a track that you know. So you've driven it several times and you know, for example, that the next corner you're approaching should be taken in second gear. And you've worked that out by on previous laps, driving in a couple of different gears you've you've gone you've tried the corner in third and you found that that puts you too too low in the rev range so your engine revs are too low you're not necessarily looking at a rev counter to know this but you're feeling it you're listening to the engine um they sat the engine revs sound quite low like a deep noise and as you get on the accelerator pedal the car doesn't really accelerate as it should that's telling you you're in a gear too high for that corner so you go down a gear and then suddenly the revs are higher and you've got more power available and you work out, ah, okay, that's the correct gear. Um, I'm, I'm able to accelerate out of the corner um, in a way which feels correct for this car. You, you know, you've driven the car enough to know how it should accelerate, what, what the maximum, what the peak power is. So you know, in this example, that this corner we're approaching is a second gear corner. So as you're approaching it and you're on the brakes, after you've started braking, you're going to commence your downshifts. Now, um, in this example, say we're in fifth gear on the straights. You know the corner you're approaching is a second gear corner, so you'll start going down sequentially one by one. So if we're in a manual car, your catering that we were talking about earlier, for example, you wouldn't ever go from fifth straight into second for a couple of reasons, which we'll come to in a moment. Um, But you're going to be braking hard. You're going down to fourth, down to third, and then eventually down to second. Now, it's down to you to judge when to when to put the car into gear and release the clutch pedal in each of these um, downshifts. By now, a little bit of experience comes in here, but essentially, you want to go down to the next gear just before, uh, sorry, just after the point where coming off the clutch is going to cause you to nearly hit the rev limiter. I'm going to say that right. again. Yeah. So, you want to go down to the next gear, so down from fifth to fourth, just after the point where doing that would have blown up the engine. So, say you're doing 100 miles per hour and you go down to fourth gear. And fourth gear can only go up to 80 miles per hour before yeah, it hits the red limiter. Blow it up. You're going to you're going to give the engine an overspeed moment. You're going to over rev the engine, and it's probably going to break. So if 80 so is the death point for fourth gear, then we wait till we get down to 75, and then we go into our fourth gear. So I guess in theory, then yes. if we were going and to, you're n- and you're not looking at the speedometer for this. No, this is down to you judging from when the engine. It feels like that. Yeah, by experience of the car. So say. When you drove the car flat out in fourth gear and you let it hit the rev limiter, say in our example, that is 80 miles an hour, you know, at roughly that speed there, you don't want to be changing down to fourth at any higher speed than that. You're going to break it. But you also don't want to wait too long after that because then you're going to lose the benefit that we want to gain from engine braking. 
We want the engine to be doing some of the deceleration for you. Because typically in most cars, when you get on the brakes, the majority of the braking is happening at the front. You don't tend to have adjustable brake bias. Um, so, you know, your, your braking distribution would tend to be, I don't know, for example, 60% of the front, 40% of the rear, maybe. Something like a Formula One car, something more high performance would tend to be a little bit more kind of 50-50 because um, it's stiffer. Um, it, it doesn't transfer all the weight to the front as easily, so you won't lock a rear as easily. But in our example, we're controlling. We're effectively giving ourselves a bit more rear brake bias by changing down a little bit earlier, um, and the car will slow down more effectively because of that. Sorry. You, you, no, that's fine. We're using the engine uh, to give us some more braking force. RJ Bone in the chat room says, better to chew up the brake pads than and than downshift and use the engine. I guess yeah, that- that's 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 uh, absolutely true on the road. Yes, absolutely right. <laughs> untrue on the track. Uh, unless you're reliability limited, unless you're unless you're actually concerned about the reliability of your engine, or maybe you're going to have to pay for it, and so you're eking it out longer, absolutely, what I'm saying is going to put more wear on components. But we're not interested in that. We're interested in the fastest possible lap time. Um, we could just we could equally say better to brake gently so you don't wear your brake pads out. Yeah, um, true. And obviously, that's that's great on the road if you've got the ability to, but. We're interested in ultimate performance in this conversation. Even in on the road, though, it depends on the age of your car. If you've got a newer car, then you don't care about the guy who's going to own it in 10 years' time. So you'd rather wear down the engines and save money on the brake pads. If you've got a clapped out or banger, you want to make that thing last as uh, you know as long as possible. So it's cheaper to buy new brake pads than have to get rid of the car. So, That's uh, an interesting example. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> as, but as, yeah, so you've, you've got the point, basically. Yeah. That's it. So you, you do absolutely want to stress the engine. Um, to to get maximum deceleration effect, but not to the point where you will actually break it. You want to finish the race and you probably want to finish the weekend. Um, and any car with paddle shift will have that setting preset into it. So in my race car at the weekend, for example, or at any Formula One car, any, any high performance race car, you can't get this wrong. You can click the paddle as early as you want and it will only let you go down to the next gear really? when you've reached the desired speed. So in my race car, for example, and I imagine a Formula One car is probably exactly the same in this respect, I can actually click as early as I want. The moment I get on the brakes and the car remembers that and then allows a downshift once I've slowed it down. So I will click the paddle, continue braking, and then it will go boom, boom, boom. And if I do three downshifts, if I know the next corner is second gear and I'm in fifth, um, I will go click, click, click and then brake, and as I approach the corner and the speed drops away, the car knows now, 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 and it will put it into those gears at the earliest possible moment. And that's the same in F1, is it? Is that the same in Formula 1 cars? I've I've not driven a Formula 1 car. I've driven uh, other single-seaters. In fact, in the Formula 3 car that uh, I used to do some test driving for, that wasn't the case. Um, In other cars I've driven, it is the case. I know for a fact in Formula 1 in the past, some cars have had that ability I can't say for sure what they do now, but anyway, that's just an example of um, of why you change at a certain point. The car knows the earliest possible moment it can do it. And I could still choose to save engine wear if I wanted to. If, if we were limited, if we thought we had a problem or if we knew we had an extra three races to get through and this engine had to last, I could choose to to not do that. I could choose to do all the braking with the brakes and change down later with less engine braking. And there wouldn't be a dramatic lap time difference. This isn't the be all and end all. Um, but if that isn't the case and I don't have those restrictions, I'm going to do it. I'm going to change that as early as possible. And in your caterum, in our theoretical track day, it's down to your judgment as to when to do that. So to begin with, I wouldn't advise you to try and do very much engine braking. I'd be saying change down 
when you know you've slowed the car down enough, obviously don't wait until you've got to the corner and then go down three gears all at once. That would be, that wouldn't be very good. Uh, that would be bad practice, but as you're braking, just wait, you know, half a second longer than you might think, and then go down a gear and off the clutch and don't do what I've seen over the last decade and a bit of instructing. Um, a lot of drivers do, which is put the clutch down and wait. There's no point going for the gear stick or putting the clutch down <laughs> until the point, you know, you actually want the next gear and the moment the car is in gear, come back off the clutch. You don't want to put it in gear and keep the clutch down. Otherwise, what was the point of putting it into that gear? You might as well have waited a little bit longer. So the moment it's in gear, come off the clutch. And in your catering, if you're not doing any um, heel and toe, which we're not going to go into right now, um, but if you're not doing that, because it's very, very light, it will lock the rear wheels slightly if you've changed down quite early. That might be a sign that maybe you're trying to use too much engine braking. So if you're going down to third gear, say, and the rear wheels lock up and you suddenly get loads of oversteer as you come off the clutch, next time change down slightly later. And then, you know, then you then you'll get a bit of engine braking without that locking of the rear. Anyway, sorry. Last question for you here on this. um, Obviously, we're not going to get to I know you're a busy man and I know you are off on your travels. We're not even going to get to to leaving the corner properly and going down the straight. So I do hope we can get you back on sometime soon. Uh, When you talk about we're breaking for, say, three downshifts worth this entire time, my brake pedal is being pressed. I'm not like I'm not like lifting off for my gear change or anything like that. I'm consistently no, although I've braking. seen people do that. I have been <laughs> sat next to a lot of people where uh, they have lifted off the brakes every time they go for a downshift. And obviously all you're doing is extending your braking distance um, for the amount of time you're off the brake pedal um, for each gear change. That's how much later you could have braked uh, if you hadn't, if you hadn't lifted off. So no, yes, maintain the brake pressure. Absolutely. And um, and obviously, the reason that we are kind of downshifting, as well as to increase engine braking, which is why we're going to, you know, the, the harshest possible point before going down is, in theory, at any moment, we could then be wanting to do the opposite, which is accelerate out the corner. And by downshifting at that point, we are already at a point where then applying the throttle means we are at good revs to get the heck out of that corner. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Really good. Well, well yeah. summarized. Yeah, you, yeah. you want to be in the correct gear, ready for the point where as you get back on the throttle, you're already in the correct point in the rev range. So there's no initial bogging down. You're already, uh, and obviously you don't have 50 gears. You've got a limited number of gears. So there's going to be some times where there's not really an ideal feeling gear. Sometimes you might have to put up with being a little bit low in the rev range in third, because the alternative is being on the rev limiter in second. And so you've got no, you've got no kind of choice there. You're going to have to go for the one which works the best. But yeah, you're exactly right. You want to be at the correct point in the rev range to accelerate away from the corner, which is why you've, we've done this kind of exploration to begin with, and you've worked out what the gear should be. Bradley, you're a busy man, so I'm going to let you go off, and me and Matt are going to go through some of the iTunes reviews we have seen this month, in the last month. Uh, but Bradley, you're, you are off on your travels, and you are going to be competing at the Nürburgring as well. Tell us a little bit about that, and where people can find you. Okay, yeah, thank you. So um, we are racing at the VLN7 event this weekend, which is the seventh round of the Randstaltergemeinschaft Langstrack and Pokal Nürburgring Championship, uh, which is basically the Nürburgring's GT Championship. There'll be around about 170 cars competing this weekend, all in the same race, on the same track at the same time, because it's massive. Um, and I'm racing in the TCR class, which is basically the touring car class. 
um, in Peugeot's 308 TCR car. Uh, we're currently third in the championship after drop rounds, th- three races to go, all to play for. We could get second, we could get fifth. Um, first is a little bit out of reach. Um, so you can follow me, uh, Twitter at Bradley Philpot. Um, my Facebook page is probably the best place to keep up to date with everything, which is Bradley Philpot Motorsport. Um, feel free to add me as a friend. Um, if I've got room for more friends, I will, I will, um, accept you. Oh, and my you YouTube out. channel <laughs> is, um, just search for my name, Bradley Philpot on YouTube and you'll find that. Um, I'm also going to be away for a bit. I'm going to miss some of your podcasts over the next couple of weeks because I'm heading immediately off on a plane from the Nürburgring to Texas, to San Antonio for uh, a global test driver conference. Cause as some of you may know, I'm the, the um, European test driver for Cooper Avon tires. And so I'll be hooning Mustangs and Corvettes around kind of more Matt's neck of the woods. Although I know you're not anywhere near San Antonio. Is so it a conference for tires? Cause that sounds like you should just take Matt with you. No, it's it's a conference for test drivers. Um, so I will be meeting our other test drivers from around the world. So I'm in charge of, of test driving for the, our European arm, but we've also got China and America. So I'm basically driving cars all at the same time as them. And we're doing something called alignment where they see they make sure everyone's driving similarly. And I fully intend to absolutely wipe the floor with the rest of the world's <laughs> test drivers. Matt, go for it. Uh, well, they made me drive my car as a test when I got my license. Does that count? Um, not, not quite, but you can feel free to try that with them. Just, just arrive with, uh, you know, something you've printed out and say, yeah, I'm, I'm Matt off Mist Apex. Let me in. Bradley, always a fascinating, uh, uh, listen when we listen to you and i will confess i don't get it first time ever uh, it, these do take uh these these do uh lend themselves to sticking on in the background and you you think oh yeah i've listened to this bit i've listened wait what oh right ah and then it suddenly sinks in and obviously if, if anyone has any questions or anything anything i've not covered i know we've only basically got to the midpoint of the corner so far so maybe next time we can talk about exits that'll be exciting wouldn't it um so any <laughs> questions whether it's you or any of the comments please feel free to send them my way even if it's a private message or something and i will try to answer them go thank get, you very much everyone. go get some rest bradley i'm gonna hang up on you thank you very much fantastic the guy knows what he's talking about and i think uh it's probably advisable to listen to that in 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 small digestible chunks and several times yeah there's a lot of information to unpack in all of his comments and he has spent years and years and years thinking about it and communicating this information to people who need it while literally his life is more or less in their hands so he's very very good at what he does yeah and and honestly having him sat next to you or debriefing you after karting or over your shoulder with sim racing i don't know why he doesn't currently do it but why he doesn't sort of hire himself out at corporate rates i think i think honestly uh, it was to, to have those two experiences for free essentially through doing this uh, feel very privileged and he's incredibly patient i guess he spent many years day after day with probably people even worse than me yeah well i i could imagine you know just based on my own teaching experience one time sometimes gets a very wide discrepancy in in abilities walking in the door and but that's always the um that's always when you know you're with someone whose class is wherever you are they take you for what you have and and they work to help you improve and he clearly clearly has mastered that and uh, if he's still listening in the chat room the, the thing that stung the most when i was talking about right so you should break in a straight line right get all your braking done in a straight line he said well you should yeah yeah 
<laughs> more time on track my friend okay matt let's talk about something we haven't talked about for quite a long time because for ages we've been featured in various places on itunes either in new and noteworthy and occasionally we actually popped into like the 200s uh the top 200 rankings but i think i've just found out recently that the itunes reviews have quite a lot to do with that we used to ask for those and we never sort of got around to reading them out i've put a few in the show notes for you as well matt um but we've had loads i did not realize how many great itunes reviews we've had and and that explains looking at the timeline why we temporarily popped up into the actual charts in the sports category so thank you very very much to people like for example tortagandoranda i'm sure that's exactly how it's pronounced great podcast got better still with joe saywood This is a great podcast. It may be done from a garden shed, but you wouldn't know it. The presenters are knowledgeable, opinionated, entertaining, and good communicators, especially Spanners, the anchorman. Uh, The addition of the brilliant Joe Sayward makes it about the best F1 podcast around. And there's one here that says something along the lines of, basically, love the podcast. Spanners, you are wrong about everything, so just listen to Matt Moore. That is all. And that is from Constitutionalist. Uh, on the US iTunes. So thank you very much for that. I appreciate that. Um, fun and light, exactly what F1 isn't, says Retro Racer. Really enjoy this to the point where I'm considering phoning in to have my say. What other podcast allows that? Oh yeah, we used to do phone-ins, but it didn't really take off. It wasn't that popular. But if you want to try your luck, add me on Skype at Spanners Ready. And uh, that's my Skype name. Call in if it's appropriate. I'll add you to the group and uh, come say hello to us. Matt, you nodding your head. Is that right? <laughs> Can we do that? Yeah. Oh, I, I love, I love the idea that we would finally get the uh, call-in feature up and running. We finally have people who are willing to call in and, and and share their opinion. I'm just looking at this list you have here. There's Personally, loads, isn't there? I, I'm loving incredibly informative by Surveyor Tom from the good old US uh, here. Uh, fantastic podcast with a great cast of presenters. The personalities combined with the top-notch information makes it one of a kind. It's amazing that people take the time to do that. We really, really appreciate it. And our audience has grown quite a lot since uh, these these were left and since we did the, the call-in. So I'll ask again if you can spare the time, like these fantastic people, to leave a five-star iTunes review. We will try and read them out more often. Uh, you know, I don't care what you say on them. Here's a one-star review by... Dave Black from the US. Unless you want to hear fawning all over Hamilton, there are many better options for your F1 podcast needs. I would recommend Alt F1 or Formula One blog.com. Yeah. What is it you say, Matt? It's a feature, not a bug. Well, absolutely. And more to the point, if, if you, if you are only going to listen to a podcast to have your preconceived ideas confirmed, then yeah, go find that podcast here. We like all the drivers equally, except for, of course, Erickson, who belongs in the sea. And even then, we'd buy him a beer because I'm sure he's a nice guy. Poor lad. He's got great hair. Uh, A different approach to F1, says uh, THG3 from the UK. Very entertaining podcast on F1. Good discussion on tech and race reports. And Spanners offers good comedy value and good discussion and tech input, surely. Absolutely. Um, personally, I'm surprised you skipped the one titled Matt Looks Like a Murderer. Oh, that's brilliant. And if you ignore the fact where he says he's just kidding, he says, this show is fantastic. This is from Koji5Git from the USA. This show is fantastic. Spanner moves along, Spanners moves along the conversation, despite Matt's best efforts, has a great co-host, has good guests such as Summers and Scarbs. Oh yeah, we had Scarbs on here. 
He responds to emails and genuinely loves feedback and interaction. Do you know what? That's true, Matt. I think I have to date responded to every single email. I love getting emails at spannersready at gmail.com. I'll do a wider email one for the whole podcast panel soon. But I think it was three weeks ago, we got such a flood of emails that I took the kids to the play center and I sat for about an hour and a half just answering emails. And I loved it. That was, to me, a huge reward for doing this podcast. So please, please get in touch for any reason. Let me know where you think I'm great. Let me know where you think I'm terrible. Uh, let me know what you think about F1. Just have a back and forth about F1. Do get in touch. Spannersready at gmail.com. Uh, Matt, you are enjoying doing your own trumpet time, and you've had good feedback from that. And we're lining up the possibility of you having a show with Summers on Sunday. I don't know if I'm going to be involved in that. Don't know if I've been invited. Oh, well, of course you're invited. You're always wow. invited. You're just not always available, which is why the patrons got together and, and have sponsored Trumpets Time. But don't worry. If we have Summers on the Sunday show, I'll come up with something special for him. And do know that your Patreon dollars now do fully support uh, Matt and his efforts towards the podcast with uh, with a percentage of what you donate to us very kindly uh, going towards Matt's production costs. Matt, where can people find you online and all the rest of those things at MattPT55, novels from your wife, etc.? Yes, at MattPT55 on the Twitters is you have memorized by now because you've heard it so many times. It's not and a of good course- Twitter handle, though, to be honest. Why don't you get at Matt Trumpets? Just start again. You've only got about 10 followers. Um, oh, yeah, why not? Yay. Search for Matt Trumpets on Twitter where he has bowed to peer pressure to change his Twitter handle. Where else can people find you? Well, um, I am on Facebook as Matt Trumpets occasionally. And uh, you can always, of course, uh, shoot me an email at mattpt55 at thegmails.com. Awesome. So look out for Tech Time with Summers and Matt Trumpets and look forward to our review of the Malaysian Grand Prix. Until I see you again, remember that wounds heal, chicks dig scars, and glory last forever. This is Miss Apex. I'm so happy. I totally got the end to match up with a bit. I'm all over this. You are. You better have done. Cool. There we go. Do you think that was all right for uh, yeah, the Bradley? Right. Shall we do comment of the week now or comment oh, of the show? Oh no. Okay. Damn. Do you know somebody said that, that it's like a, a bit that I do to try and be funny to like say, oh look, he's hilariously forgotten comment of the week. I'm genuinely devastated each and every time, and I celebrate when I remember it. But uh, if you have one, Matt, let's hear what is. Comment of the week. Yeah, you got me. Sorry about that. Yeah, uh, yeah. We 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 had a couple very early on, and then I sort of got distracted by by um, Brad there. But um, at the very beginning, Low Stealth said, "Quote: You are trying to listen to Miss Apex." <laughs> okay, okay. No, don't ruin it. Like, as far as anyone knows, listening or watching, I get that intro right first time every time and then uh brand new first time for the live streamer multi 21 welcome responded i'm being drowned in professionalism again peeking behind the curtain ignore the man behind the curtain indeed indeed 
Uh, we had good old Ruraid McKay uh, responding to the fact that Multi 21 is from Scotland, saying, It's a bra moonlicht nicht nicht, which I have no idea what that means, but it looked impressive. Oh, no, no, it makes perfect sense. We speak of little else here. Um, but I think describing your fantasy midlife crisis, we might have a winner in Ed Ishending or E Dishending. I don't know how he says it. Use, use my early. tactic and just say the first few letters correctly and then just anything afterwards. Yeah. At any rate, in, 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 in response to your fantasy midlife crisis, he said, try telling your wife that. What, that I want a race car? No, I mean, she's yeah. not happy. <laughs> we, she's not happy with me taking the boy karting. Uh, I had not factored that in, to be fair, to the midlife crisis. I just assume that I'll be a rich and handsome and uh, erudite international icon by the time I hit my midlife crisis. Yes, well, it worked out that way for me, for sure. So, <laughs> so who are you giving comment of the week, Matthew? I don't know, but I think it's going to have to be multi-21 and being drowned in professionalism. Boo. Comment of the week. Excellent. Thank you very much, Chatroom. Chatroom, you are fantastic and just distracting. It's like, oh, it's a really interesting thing about downshifts. What's going on in the... What what interesting things is the chatroom doing? Oh, they're just giving me a ton of crap. And then that, that, that is interesting, amusing... And distracting, and you go, right, okay, back to Bradley Philpott's interesting. No, hang on a minute. I want to see what else. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. <laughs> 